Well, that was fun, huh? <laughs> um, so, a couple years ago, a few years ago, I think, we actually did this, you know, and that somebody was good enough to make a video so I could show you it was easier, but we did it in, a, in, in the worship service. We just went on because um, Google search has a thing where uh, it's predictive, so it, it recognizes you typing and it guesses what you're about to say, and, and it guesses based upon that's what most people say. Right? So when you type in, why are Christians so, those come up. And uh, we actually did it as an exercise one time, three or four years ago. Just had the person in the booth, type, person in the booth typing it in, and it was astonishing. It was the same kind of thing. Um, so maybe you've seen that before or, or heard about that. But, but here's what I'm wondering. If, if you're a Christian, how does that make you feel? Um, it's my first instinct in looking at something like that is, is to be offended and to be defensive because I, I, I think that's not who I am. That's not who we are. That's not what Christ stands for. That's not what Christianity is all about. And, and I feel defensive and I think, you know what? You don't know me. You, 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 I, I hate being judged like that. And so I'm offended. I've been doing a lot of research, though, on it. For the last several months, I've been preparing this sermon series, and I've been reading a lot, and I've been doing a lot of research, and I've been looking at a lot of studies, and I've been asking the question, how do non-Christian Americans see Christianity? How do they see the church? How do they see us? And I've been reading a lot of quotes from people who are thoroughly disgusted with Christianity, or, or at least thoroughly disgusted with what they understand Christianity to be. Sorry, I was standing there and I couldn't see Emil's face. It was just not cool. So. <laughs> um, and, and I have all kinds of responses to the amount of disgust that I see coming the way of the church. Um, and, and it begins with this. Part of me says, hey, this is kind of good news because Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you, right? Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted. And sure enough, a study came out just yesterday. I don't know if you saw the article. It just came out yesterday, and it was a study done by the Center for Studies on New Religion. They do it every year, and they, one of the things they try to find out is who is the most persecuted people group on the planet, and this year again... Christians are the most persecuted people group on the planet. According to their study, over 90,000 Christians were killed for their faith in 2016. Okay? So, so I look at this and I think, well, gosh, you know, maybe we're on the right track because Jesus said that they're going to hate us and they're going to persecute us and all of that. And I think, well, you know, of course they hate us. Jesus said we'd be persecuted, and it's the message that we're preaching that they're against. And so when I see videos like this one, I, I get um, a little frustrated. I see the anger that is coming at Christians, and I get defensive. And I think to myself, you know what? It's not us they hate. It's the message 
of Jesus. It's not us they hate, it's Jesus. It's his message of truth that calls people to repentance that is so offensive to people that they hate so much, and that's what makes them so angry. That's what I think, but I'm wrong. Because all of the research says otherwise. All of the research, and there is tons of it, shows that among people who look who think of Christianity from outside the church, it is not Jesus they don't like. It is not the message of the gospel that they don't like. In fact, among those surveyed who reject Christianity, the most, uh, most of them don't have any problem with the gospel. Most of them can't even really tell you what the gospel is. Most of them don't have any problem with the message of the Bible. There are those that you run into that have these verses that they read on some blog somewhere that says Christians like to stone their children or those kinds of things, and you get that. But, but most people don't even know. They, they don't know what to be offended by. In fact, most of them don't even know what the Bible teaches or what the gospel is, but they do know some Christians, and they're not impressed with what they see. They talk about things like hypocrisy and judgment, and narrow-mindedness, and bigotry. And don't get me wrong, I am not saying that they're always right. I am just saying that it has gotten to the point where the numbers are so huge, and the research is so overwhelming, that that is the view that is prevalent in our culture outside of the church today, that at some point we have to stand up and go, what's going on? What is this all about? Like it or not, the prevailing view of Christianity among those outside the church is that we are judgmental, hateful, mean-spirited, bigoted, narrow-minded, etc., etc. And by the way, when you do the research, the younger they are, the madder they get. The, the younger generation is absolutely incensed with what they perceive to be Christianity and what they perceive to be Christians. And you and I can disagree with their opinion. We can come up with all kinds of arguments. But the truth remains, this is how we are seen. Whether we deserve it or not. Somehow, in spite of all of our efforts, somehow in spite of all the good things that Christians do and all the hospitals and all the missions and all the feeding kitchens and all that kind of stuff, those who don't know Jesus generally put Christianity and Christians in the category of judgmental. That's the most common thing that we hear. When describing Christians, they use words like homophobic, hateful, um, narrow-minded, bigots. Those are their words. In other words, we are known more for what we seem to be against than for what we seem to be for. There's, a, there's an organization called the Barna Research Group. They're, they're kind of the most respected Christian survey and research group um, in, in the world, and they do research. They are a Christian organization. A lot of times when you have polls and surveys, it's skewed because of the way they ask questions or the group that they ask questions of, and they want it to say what they want it to say. So the Barna group is on the side of the church. The Barnum Research Group is trying to help the church be what we're supposed to be. And so they did a recent survey, and they surveyed Americans ages 16 to 29, okay? So, so that is people who are old enough to have a reasonably informed opinion and young enough that people my age call them young, okay? 16 to 29. 
And here was the question. There's nothing else. One question. What words or phrases best describe Christianity? And for a whopping 91% of the non-Christian young people in the survey, the first word that came to their mind was anti-gay. 91%. Nine out of ten said, when I think of Christianity, the first thing that pops into my mind is anti-homosexual. And that shocked me. And, and that blew my mind. And I thought, what could be more surprising than this? Are you ready? Of the Christian young people given the same survey, 80% said the same thing as their first answer. 80% of Christians between the age of 16 and 29, the first thought that comes to their mind when you say what best describes Christianity, their answer is anti-gay. The fact that it's anti-anything blows my mind. Why is this so bad? Well, first, because the Bible doesn't teach us to hate gay people. In fact, it teaches exactly the opposite. So that's problem number one. And problem number two, because almost everyone under the age of 30 has multiple significant relationships, friendships, a brother, a sister, a child, a parent, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, who is identified, self-identifies with the LGBT community. So, so if, if you're separated from that and you, this is not on your radar and you're not thinking much about this, maybe it doesn't bother you that the church has seen this way, but for for young people, because this we know, that the transition in our lifetimes has been amazing in this culture. This is the first generation of people for whom homosexuality is almost completely accepted in our culture. And so they have grown up without the stereotypes and ideas that older people grew up with, right? And so it is the obviously the largest age group of people that are out of the closet openly gay people, right? So everyone who is young has gay friends. To you, it may be an issue. To them, it's their friend. To them, it's a person, an actual human being who has feelings and has needs and, and needs care and love and concern and is hurting and is experiencing abuse and rejection. That's who it is to them. So we should be highly concerned that the first thought that people have when they think Christian is that we're against anything or anyone. But the thought that it's against people who are gay is even more heartbreaking. This is not a minor issue. Now, the topic of my message, the topic of this new series is not about homosexuality and how we should feel about homosexuality and what does the Bible say about it. The Bible says a lot about it. And if you're interested, we did a sermon series a few months back where we dealt with it, and you can find it online and see what the Bible says about that and more about what we should be thinking about it. But, but these are people we're talking about. And those people think that Christians hate them. They think that we judge them. And that's really the key word here, judgment. 
A whole lot of people in our culture are convinced that the most common trait of Christians is that we are judgmental. And they know that Jesus taught us not to be. So their beef is not with Jesus, it's with us. So we want to pat ourselves on the back and say, they don't respect us, they don't love us, they persecute us because we stand for the gospel and we stand for Jesus. Not true. That's not their problem. Their problem is us. Their problem is the attitude that they perceive among the Christians that they know. Now, they may be right, they may be wrong, but that's their beef. Something about Jesus is incredibly attractive to everybody. And something about his followers is not. And we need to fix that. So I'm starting a new series this morning. That was all my introduction, okay? (laughs) So I'm starting a new series this morning. You can see the signs on the wall called Putting Down the Gavel, Loving Like Jesus. And, And the idea is that somehow we have to address this massive elephant in the room culturally where the church is losing ground at breakneck speed in our culture. It's not just young people who are leaving the church. It's people of every generation, every age group, every uh, ethnicity, every part of the country. The church is losing ground in this culture at a faster pace than it ever has in the history of the United States. In fact, among that same age group, 16 to 29, when they give them a survey, and, and it's about anything, and one of the questions is, uh, indicate your religious affiliation, and you put a list, and you put everything, Muslim and Jewish and Hindu and Protestant, Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, all of that, and then down at the bottom is a box that says none. 40% check none. No religious preference whatsoever. Not interested not going to get involved, don't want to hear the arguments, have already made up their mind, they've decided that they can't know what the truth is anyway, so why get involved in religion when everybody they know in religion is a hypocrite anyway? I'm not saying it, that's what they're saying. And I want to listen. And so in this series, I'm going to get really honest. And we, the body of Christ, we're going to have to grapple with this. We're going to have to get serious and There may be some things that I say that are challenging that you don't really like to hear. And and there may be some times when I throw out a concern and say, as the church, this is how we're seen, and you're going to get offended, and you're going to say, dang it, you can't say that about me. I'm not like that. And so here's what I have to say. I am not saying that all of us have a problem with judgmentalism. What I am saying is they think we do. Okay? And, And I'm saying this. As we get into this and we begin to peel it back and we begin to look at the way that Jesus loves people and compare that to the way that his church tends to do it and we see that there's a discrepancy, I'm asking you to have an open mind and an open heart and to say to the Lord, hey Lord, show me what might need to change in the way I think about things. Show me what may need to change in the way I deal with people. And if you find something that I say a little too challenging or a little too offensive, here's what I have to say. If the shoe fits, wear it. And if it doesn't, Pray for those whom it fits. And, and, and if you find yourself looking around for who it fits, it fits you. Okay? So something to think about. But it is uncomfortable. And, and to be honest, I've, I've been so bathing in this stuff for the last couple of months that um, 
the debate that is going on in our culture is an angry debate. Nobody is just sitting down around a table having coffee chatting about this. The blogs are just biting. The remarks in the blogs are just stinging. And it's coming from every side. Everybody's angry. Everybody feels offended. Everybody feels judged. The non-Christians feel judged by the Christians. The Christians feel judged by the non-Christians who are saying they're judgmental. And, and people are hurt. And people are angry. And, and I'm bathing in this. And so here's the thing. If you haven't noticed already, I'm kind of passionate about this. But I'm not angry. And I want to be really clear about that. It is not my desire to beat anybody over the head, either those who are outside the church and tell them that they're being idiots for their view, nor those who are inside the church to make us feel that somehow we're more judgmental than we are. What I'm trying to say is we are the body of Christ. They don't know him except through us. So we have to take this seriously. And we have to figure out what, if anything, is wrong in me that needs to change so the Lord can shine through me. And so when I say that too many Christians are judgmental, I'm not implying that every Christian is judgmental. So don't get all bent on shape. But do ask God to open your heart. Oh, and by the way, if you know somebody who, whose view is, listen, I, have, I like Jesus, but I've just got no place for organized religion. Or, you know what? I, I'm fine with Jesus. It's the Christians that I have a problem with. Or anybody that's in that younger age group where they're grappling with this kind of stuff and they're being inundated with ideas and not hearing a biblical view on it, this is the sermon series to bring those people to. This is the sermon series to, to put them in touch with our podcasts. Let them listen. Encourage them to listen and then talk about it with them. And, and invite them to grapple with these questions because some of what we have been doing to offend them, we're going to own and we're going to try to address. And some of the things that they think are true about Christians are actually not true and they're going to find that out. So I encourage you to get them in, involved in this. Okay, so we're discussing being judgmental. Since we're discussing that, I was thinking, what the heck, we might as well see if the Bible says anything about it, okay? You guys good with that? So let's go to Matthew chapter 7, and let's see if Jesus has an opinion on this. Matthew chapter 7, uh, if you don't know already, is the famous Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon that has ever preached. We pick it up in chapter 7. The sermon goes from chapter 5 through chapter 6 and chapter 7. We're picking up the beginning of chapter 7, so we're two-thirds of the way through the sermon. And so I don't have time to give you all the background of the sermon. I encourage you to read it at home this week. But we're going to pick it up in chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus is speaking. And here's what he says. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So apparently Jesus is not going to beat around the bush on this subject. He, this is hard stuff. I mean, he comes right out. He goes, if we're going to talk about judgment, let me just tell you, stop doing it. 
If you're judgmental, stop being judgmental. And, and he even goes so far as to say, in fact, if judgmentalism describes you, if you are a person who is a judge, then what you need to realize is that you have taken the place of God because only God can judge the heart. Somebody say amen. amen. Right? That's true. Only God can judge the heart. So if you have decided to judge people's hearts, then what you have done is the ultimate act of idolatry. You have made yourself God and you will be judged. So, so he's saying, we better take this seriously. This is a big deal. And he's commanding us not to judge. But as he commands us not to judge, let's be careful not to misunderstand what he's saying. Let's be careful not to read into it something that he's not saying. So let's start with what he's not saying. Let's start with what he doesn't mean. He's clearly not saying that there is no such thing as right and wrong. That's not what he's saying. When he tells us not to judge, he is not trying to imply that there is no moral absolutes, that there's no black and white, that there's no standard for living, that there are no things that are wrong. Um, of course there are things that are wrong. The Bible is remarkably clear on the issue. Some things are morally right and other things are morally wrong, and everybody knows that. Even those outside the body of Christ, even those who have never read the Bible, they know that some things are right and some things are wrong. We don't all agree on what is right and wrong, but it's amazing how much generally people do agree on. Like everyone knows that rape is wrong. Everybody knows that murder is wrong. Everybody knows that child abuse is wrong. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find a sane person in any culture who would argue with you about whether or not those things are wrong because God has not only put it in his word, which is where we get the standard of truth, but the Roman says he even put it in our heart. So we know right and wrong. There's something called natural law that everybody kind of agrees to. So already we know that there's right and wrong. So this baloney argument that is so common among amateur philosophers today that says what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for me and if those things are opposites, so be it. There is no absolute right and wrong. That is baloney. That's the Greek word for that. Baloney. Okay? The scripture is very clear. Now, of course, not everybody accepts the scripture as authoritative truth and I get that and we have to respect the people who are coming from that point of view. So we're talking about the homosexual issue which is the big hot button probably the biggest hot button in our day the last several years. There's been um, amendments voted on in almost every state of the union about gay marriage. Their politicians all talk about it. Everybody blogs about it. Everybody is talking about it. It's the hot button issue. And so um, if, those, if there are people who don't believe that the Bible is authoritative, they may argue that homosexual behavior is not wrong because they don't give authority to the scripture. I know it's wrong, because the Bible is crystal clear on it and God has communicated that in his word. So I can stand on that truth. But here's the thing. I have to do it in a way that expresses actual love and actual care and actual concern for people who are caught up in a very, very difficult situation where their temptation is different than my temptation. And I cannot sit here on my ivory tower looking down at somebody else who is struggling and and not love them. See, when they say we're judgmental, they're not upset that we believe in right and wrong. In fact, all of the research shows that they have less respect for Christians who don't believe in right and wrong. 
okay? It's not that. It's our attitude. It's this holier-than-thou kind of thing. It's the fact that we put them in a category and label them and, and don't see them as human beings and seem to care about their needs and care about their desires and care about their plight. They, they lump all that together and they say they hate us. That's what their beef is. And, and you know, it's not going to be enough for us to just be nice to them while we grit our teeth. It is not enough for people to act like they love someone who they obviously don't love. We have to love people. Like Jesus said, if you want to know what life's about, here it is. Love God and love people. Once you do that, you can figure the rest of it out. You don't throw out truth in order to do that, but we better love people even as we discuss the truth. Truth is incredibly important. We're never called to ignore or compromise truth, especially just because it makes somebody uncomfortable. So we're not talking about this popular notion of what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for me. In fact, Jesus tells us in this very passage that we just read where he tells us not to judge, in the same passage he says, do take the speck out of your brother's eye. Just take the log out of your eye first. In other words, don't set yourself up as this holier-than-thou person who judges others and tells them what's wrong with their life. Deal with your own stuff and as part of that journey, help your brother when he's struggling. If he is doing something wrong, help him correct. If he is believing something wrong, help him understand. He tells us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. He's just checking our attitudes. We're told all throughout Scripture to judge right and wrong. We're even told to remove people from the church who refuse to conform to right doctrine or right behavior. God's not kidding around with this right and wrong thing. It's the love that's the problem. When we start trying to judge somebody else's heart, that's the problem. So guess what? You don't know my heart. And I don't know yours. That's God's thing. God reserves the right to judge our hearts because God's the only one who knows our hearts. Another problem is when our pride or arrogance causes us to just look down on somebody because he or she is struggling with a sin or a temptation that we're not struggling with or believe something that we don't believe or disbelieve something that we do believe. Here we go. If you're taking notes, you're going to write this down. If you don't get anything else, get this. You're going to go, well, no, duh, pastor, I know this. But sometimes we just have to go back to the beginning. Are you ready? Here we go. Jesus loves sinners. Sometimes I think we forget. Sometimes I think we forget. We're saved because Jesus loves sinners. Jesus came because he loves sinners. That's the whole point. The whole reason that his church is still here on the earth rather than all of us just getting raptured up to heaven the moment we believe is because Jesus loves sinners. And he leaves us here to be his voice to people who desperately need that love. And I'm telling you, very few of them are hearing that voice these days. And we can be mad at them for it, or we can face the fact that somehow we've lost sight of the <coughs> primacy of the fact that Jesus loves sinners. So this is not about sacrificing truth. It's not about giving up thinking or discernment or biblical authority. It's nothing like that. 
It's not about tolerating every idea or belief as having equal merit. There's this, all this talk about tolerance. It's the number one value in our culture today. Number one by far, tolerance. Number one value in our culture. But, but what is meant by tolerance is that you must tolerate every idea as having equal merit. That's not tolerance. Tolerance is loving people who have the ideas that do not have equal merit. It's about people, not ideas, right? So, so we're supposed to be engaged in the marketplace of ideas, but we have to do it because we love people. So it's about humbly loving people rather than arrogantly judging them. It's about putting down the gavel and letting God judge people's hearts. It's about letting go of condemning people even though we sometimes have to condemn their actions. The subtitle of the series is Loving Like Jesus, who, by the way, is the only person who is actually qualified to judge anybody. Amen? So why don't we leave that up to him? He's qualified. And somehow he managed to find a way to always speak the truth and challenge people to repent and turn from their sin without ever compromising his grace or love for them. It's astonishing to me as you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus being confronted by people who are caught up in terrible sin and, and he confronts them about their sin, calls them to repent and give up everything and follow him. I mean, he addresses their issues and they turn around and invite him to their parties. They turn around and run and get their friends and say, come on, you have to meet this guy. He told me everything about my heart. Like Jesus is someone they want their friends to meet. So somehow he was able to be confrontational and at the same time so clearly loving that people were drawn to him. Remember, Jesus said the truth is meant to set people free. So loving Christians need to speak the truth. And those outside the body of Christ actually have very little problem with that. In fact, this, this exodus of young people from the church that we hear about and read about so much, and it's absolutely true that the numbers of young people who are old enough to make their own decisions about being involved in the church are, are you know, in a massive wave deciding not to be involved in the church. And it goes across the board. I mean, it's, it's Catholic and Protestant. It is Every denomination down the line, we're all losing ground with that generation. But the denominations that are losing the most, most ground by far are the liberal denominations that have given up the truth of Scripture. Their idea is we want to be relevant. We want them to know that we care. So we're going to stop talking about sin and we're going to stop confronting people and calling them to repentance and all that kind of stuff. And those denominations that have taken that track are losing ground so fast that most predictions say they won't exist in 10 years. So, so people aren't just looking for some sort of easy believism where nobody believes anything but everybody's nice to them. If you want that, you could be like a universalist, Unitarian, or some sort of New Age kind of thing. That's out there, but not in Christianity. So, so it's interesting. The answer is not to stop speaking the truth. The answer is that somehow our heart needs to change. The kind of judgment that Jesus is warning us about is something we're all familiar with because we've all been judged, Right? I mean, maybe you felt judged today when you walked in here and somebody looked at you funny. Or maybe 
Maybe you felt judged at work this week, or maybe you remember a moment that is just scarred on your heart from fifth grade when everybody laughed at you and they labeled you and they called you a name and you felt like you were that person in their eyes forever. We know what it's like to feel judged. We know what it's like because judgmental people tend to judge a book by a cover, slap a label on it, and move on. Judgmental people tend to have these sort of sweeping judgments based on very little evidence and not knowing anything about a person's heart or their background or their story or what brought them to this place. Judgmental people make us feel small because that makes them feel bigger, right? And we all know that. In short, judgmental people put themselves in the place of God, and he says if you do that, you're going to be judged as well. But Jesus is not the only one that talks about this. Paul addresses it as well in Romans of all places. So turn to the book of Romans. Five books, I think, to your right. You'll find the book of Romans. And go to Romans chapter 2. Now, the book of Romans is this amazing treatment of doctrine where Paul spends the first chapter, Romans chapter 1, he just lays it out and says, listen, man's problem is sin. And it looks like this, and it looks like this, and it looks like this, and it looks like this. And we are depraved, and we are lost, and we cannot save ourselves, and we cannot help ourselves. I mean, he just pours it on in Romans chapter 1. He talks about the wrath of God being poured out upon people. And then he says this, chapter 2. What an interesting transition. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you... Christian, have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So interesting. He says, all these people are under God's judgment, but don't you dare judge them. God will handle that. If you judge them, you're judging yourself because even just your judging is sinful and it comes under the wrath of God. And then he says this, remember something, Christian. It is God's kindness that led you to repentance. God did not say, repent, and if you do, I'll be kind to you. God reached out to us while we were yet sinners, and his kindness drew us to him. That's why they went after Jesus and followed him and chased him down. His kindness led them to repentance. That's why, if you're a Christian today, that's why you came to Christ. It's because he lovingly, patiently, graciously reached out to you, how many times should he have squashed you like a bug? Man, when I think about this, I get choked up. He should have wiped me out so many times. His kindness even brought me to the place where repentance was possible. His kindness leads us to repentance. So if you're not quite sure if you measure up, maybe you just wandered in here, maybe you're new around here, maybe today you just wanted somewhere warm to sit down, you came in and you don't even know what we're talking about, whatever the situation is for you, if you wonder at Grace Fellowship whether or not you measure up enough, whether or not you're okay, whether or not you're good enough, um, let me just introduce myself. My name is Doug Spriggs. I'm the senior pastor here. And I'm the biggest screw-up you know. 
I struggle every day against the pull of the flesh and I lose a lot of those battles. I, I continue to stumble in some of the same areas I was stumbling in 10 years ago and God taught me and I'm still stumbling in those same areas. I'm still grappling with his word and going, I read some stuff here and I go, I don't like that. I'm just not going to apply it. I am not so different from you. We all fit in this category. And if you're redeemed, the Lord sees you as holy because of the blood of Jesus Christ and he has made you his son or his daughter and adopted you and given you your full inheritance and everything pertaining to life and godliness. That doesn't mean he's stupid and doesn't see. He knows. Even if you're a Christian, he understands the parts of your heart that you won't even look at. He understands the secrets that you bear that if anybody found out, you'd be devastated. He understands the bitterness that you're still holding on to. He sees it all crystal clear and he patiently, graciously, kindly leads you to repentance. You fit in. We're all pilgrims struggling against the same temptations and fleshly desires. The only thing that separates me from some vile sinner that is, that is not a part of fellowship with Jesus Christ is that God has already showered his grace upon me. His grace. Don't you love that word? Grace. It's, it's the ocean I swim in. It's the air I breathe. It's, it's the only reason I'm alive. If not for the amazing grace of God, I would already be judged, condemned, and cast into hell. That's a fact. That's not hyperbole. I have done nothing to deserve God's grace. And if I had, it wouldn't be grace, would it? Thinking about that word grace makes me think of one of the most despicable men in history. He, he eventually became one of the most respected men of his age, but it didn't start that way. He, he lived in a day and time in England when slavery was rampant in the West. It was before slavery had been outlawed in England. It was before slavery had been outlawed in the States. And he was a slave trader. This is how he made his living. He was involved in kidnapping people, loading them on ships, and taking them across the Atlantic and selling them to the highest bidder. And, and you know, you've studied the history, you, you've seen the documentaries, read the books, you know what this looks like, giant ship with a big hull and people lined up one next to another, laying down on top of one another, nowhere to stand, no bathroom facilities, no food, nothing like that, chained up and put across the ocean. You know how long it takes to get across the Atlantic Ocean with a sail? And by the time they got there, a huge percentage of those people were dead. And they just chucked them in the sea. He made his living doing that. Until one day, through a series of events, someone came to him with the gospel of Jesus Christ and explained to him that God's grace was enough for him. And he said, it isn't. How can it be? You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know how bad I am. You don't know what I've done. But it's despicable. 
And through a conversation and some time of working through this, he finally came to understand that if the grace of God is enough for the thief on the cross, and the grace of God is enough for everyone who has ever called upon the name of the Lord, then the grace of God is enough for him too. And he fell on his knees and he accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior and he set out to follow him. Eventually, he grew in his spiritual life. He became a pastor. He became one of the best-known pastors of his generation, impacting the world with the gospel. He became respected and honored and invited to speak to large crowds of clean, washed, well-manicured people. So one day, the Reverend John Newton, the former slave trader, sat down at his desk just overwhelmed with what God had done for him. And he penned these words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a wretch like me. I was in a church once and singing was happening and we stood to sing the song and the organ began to play and they played the opening chords to this beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace, and it touches my heart. And with everybody else, I stood up belting out, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. And the words went like this, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. They changed the word because to call people a wretch is offensive. Guys, if you don't know you're a wretch, you don't think you need the grace of God, right? What makes the grace amazing is that I'm so wretched. That's the point. We are desperate without Christ. Who are we wretches to ever judge somebody else struggling through their own wretchedness? So I'm here as a fellow wretch to tell you his amazing grace is real. It transforms lives. It puts back together what's been broken. It restores the years that the locusts have eaten. It gives hope and peace and joy where there was only anger and heartache and bitterness. It changes everything, the grace of God. So let me ask you this. As a fellow wretch, who am I to judge the heart of somebody else? I think instead I'm just going to put down the gavel. I think I'm just going to pick up the servant's towel and I'm beginning wash some wretched feet. And I'm going to let the actual love of Jesus pour through me to the people who need it the most. That's what I'm going to do with his amazing grace. What are you going to do with it?